0: I'm going to talk about uh, stained the theme as we've been talking about. And wait a second, were we in Colossians? And mm-hmm. uh, why, why this? And you know what? Those are wonderful questions. We can talk about them at another time. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of like a joke. It's an inside joke to some folks in the room. So, um, anyways, Luke chapter 18. And if you will turn to verse 35, that's where I'm going to read. So here we go. This is Jesus uh, drawing near to Jericho. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd gathering by, he, the blind man, inquired what this meant. He told them. And and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought near. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith, has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Amen. This is God's word. And uh, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we need you. We need you by your spirit to come and help us to make much of Jesus in our hearts. Would you be with us even now? Would you be with me as I speak? And give me confidence? Speak with clarity and passion. Pray, Lord, that I would worship even up here. I pray these people's hearts would be brought to worship and adoring the wonderful Savior that we call Jesus. Would you do that even in our midst now? We pray for His sake and for His glory. Amen. Um, When I was about 11 years old, I, uh, I was so proud of my new gift. My new gift was my uh, new Rawlings baseball glove uh, with the now infamous Jose Canseco's name sort of burned into the palm of the glove. And man, did I go to just incredible lengths to break that bad Jackson in. But um, us see, if you've ever gotten a brand new baseball glove or a brand new softball glove, those things take forever to break in. And so the first step that one normally does is spend costly hours throughout days on end working oil deep into the leather. Why? Because if you do this, the glove's life will go farther than it would without it. Well then I would pound the ball into the palm about a jillion times just popping it like this. I would tie a shoelace with a ball inside it around the glove about three or four times and sleep with it under my mattress for about a week. And finally, in due time, that glove would come out, shaped like my hand, and perfect uh, perfect for catching. The glove needed to be broken in. It needed to be stick-shaped and softened to its owner's hand so that it could be put to good use. Now, suppose for just a moment that I did all this work on the glove. And after it was broken in, I put it up on a shelf, and never used it. If I just put it up there and stared at it and I had you over and I said, hey, friends from YXL, I just wanna show you my baseball glove. If that's all I did with it, you would look at me with one of two looks. Either you're crazy, or you don't know how to play baseball. Here's why. Because our baseball gloves are meant to sit on dresser tops and collect dust? Absolutely not. They're meant to be put to use. In other words, the Rawlings Baseball Company made that baseball glove to catch baseballs. The sole purpose for which the glove was made was catching baseballs. Had it sat on my dresser, it would not have fulfilled the purpose for which it was made. Did you know that we, too, are prone to doing life like, like a dresser sitting, dust collecting, baseball glove? Yes, we're, too, prone to forgetting the purpose to which we have been made. What do I mean? Well, we've been talking all week about being stained, right? Right? Yeah, okay, you guys, there we go. It's good. And uh, we've used that word stained in a very poetical way. We've used it as a way of speaking about what happens to us, Jesus' blood-bought lambs, when he calls us his own. And so to be stained in that way always assumes a purpose. And did you know that the purpose for which we have been made, this text tells us, is for beauty. I'll say it again. The text for which we have been made for beauty. Now, we're going to come back and we're going to unpack that, but I want to look at a couple different things about this beauty. In other words, this text uh, about a man begging for the attention of God himself tells us three things about the character or the quality of our purpose. First of all, you'll see this, the stain, the stain, if you will, is always costlier than you think. And that the stain always goes deeper in than you think. And lastly, the stain always goes farther out than you think. Let's take a look at the first little bit. The stain is always costlier than you think. Verses 35 to 39 show us that. Will you turn your eyes with me to the text if you've got a Bible? I'll read it. As Jesus uh, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by on the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Now, let's stop for just a second and sort of uh, open this up a little bit. First of all, we see a man begging by the roadside. And if you were a beggar in that culture that day, you know who you were? You were the equivalent of, quote, an outcast. You were, you were on the losing end of, uh, of mean girl treatment. Does that make sense? Do you guys sort of resonate with that? In other words, this guy would have been a loser. Now, I use that that language, that's sort of what you resonate with, but it goes deeper. It's actually, he was an outcast. Nobody would have associated with this man. And here he is, and he hears murmuring. He can't see it, but he hears it. He hears footsteps gathering. He may feel dust kicking up on his arms and on his neck and on his face. And so he asks, what's this all about? And the crowd says, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And so he cries out in a loud voice, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they tell him, hey, buddy, uh, keep quiet. Let's pipe things down a little bit. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an illustration of what this means that he was actually, the text says that he cried out uh, in a loud voice, Jesus, have mercy on me. This idea of crying out is a loud crying out. It's not a, Jesus. None of that. Uh, There's a a movie that illustrates this pretty – I mean a television show that illustrates this pretty well. Back when I was your age, I loved Saturday Night Live. And one of the texts – and one of the – good gracious texts – one of the scripts and and little sketches was um, a sketch called Mr. No-Depth Perception Man. And what Mr. No-Depth Perception Man was, uh, was this a man who lacked uh, three-dimensional sense – so uh, he may sit here and, uh, and say to Skyler, high five and go like that because he thought that Skylar was like right in front of him, right? Does that make sense? And so he would have people over for dinner and uh, this couple, these two couples were coming over for dinner and one couple arrived earlier and the one couple, the wife of Mr. No-Depth Perception Man said to this man who came over, I've heard you've taken up a new hobby. And he said, yes, skydiving. And Mr. No-Depth Perception Man says, oh, I'd like to try that. And everybody goes, no, you don't need to try that. The third couple comes over for dinner. It's a female friend of theirs with her new boyfriend, and her name is Brenda. as Brenda walks in, Mr. No-Depth Perception Man says in a loud voice where everybody can hear, as if she is on the other side of the room, but she isn't, I can't believe that loser that Brenda is dating. She's just in it for the money. Now, what am I getting at here? It's a loud, obnoxious, uncouth, socially unacceptable voice. And that is exactly, that is exactly what is happening right here. It's not meant to be funny necessarily, but the point is, is that it's absolutely socially unacceptable. And, and this man, whatever social capital he had left, he just spent. Why do I say all of this? Because for this man to actually cry out for Jesus... Assumed or presupposes that he understood himself as a beggar in need of God's grace. He was a man who knew himself to be somebody that had come to his own wit's end. He had nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, it means you've actually already spent everything. In other words, it is very, very, very costly to follow Jesus. For the stain to reach you, it is a very costly thing. You may say how. I'll give you an example. For some of you, for Jesus to work His stain deep into your life and heart will be incredibly incredibly costly of social capital for you. It was for me. I wish I had time to tell you of my friends, Andy, Garrett, another Andrew, Zach, my friends that I lost virtually overnight. And this was not of my own choosing when I began to follow Jesus. And we still remained buddies, but the closeness wasn't there anymore because they didn't want anything to do with a Christian. That's a very painful and hurtful thing. And some of you know what that is like, some of you know what it's like in other spheres. Not necessarily social circles, but it's real. And Jesus says that the cost of following him, the cost of having that stain deep down in your heart will always, always be a bankruptcy of your own self. We sing it in the Psalms. It goes something like this. Um, uh, Sorry, sorry, it goes, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dreamed, all the fitness that He requireth. Oh, crud! Help me with the last line. Yeah, yeah. they to feel your need of Him. The best line, mess it up. But that's it. You see, that's it. That's what's required. That's the cost for you to have to feel your love and your need for Him will be deeply costly for the other loves in your life. Not only does Jesus say that. Cost of the stain will be higher than you imagined, the stain itself will actually go deeper in than you would ever think. Look with me at verses 35 to 39. Oops, sorry, I just looked at that. Look with me at verses 40 to 42. Here Jesus comes face to face with the blind man and asks him one of the most penetrating questions in all of scripture, what do you want, for me, to, do you want me to do for you? Now, this is a very important item uh, to point out. The blind man says that he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, seeing how Jesus was, quote, the son of Joseph by earthly standards, what does this blind man mean? Now, we don't have time to unpack everything, but what he is saying here is he is referring to a messianic title that harkens back to Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 spoke of a time. When this great heir, this great son of David was going to come and he was going to finally make Israel right, he was going to restore God's people, and he was going to be a direct line of the great king David. And you know what's going to characterize this great king's rule? It says in Isaiah 61 that the sight was going to be restored to the blind. Here's a man knowing his own need, knowing his own blindness, hears that this this Messiah, this Galilean named Jesus, is coming by and cries out for mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. And he says, what do you want for me to do for you? And he says, the blind man says, Lord, I want you to recover my sight. And he says, your sight is recovered. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I didn't say go in peace. It happens elsewhere. Go. And we know that from uh, this, this source here, this, this language of this faith making, this faith that makes you well actually speaks to more than just a physical healing. You see, God takes the stain in the person of Jesus and rubs it deep down. It's like he goes way beyond, way beyond his sight. Do you see that? Do you follow me? Yeah. Now look. That happens in every single one of us. That happens in every single one of us. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Now, what's helpful to mention is this idea of faith. What's helpful for me to define is to say to you guys, when we think of faith, we think of it in a multiplicity of ways. We think about the faith, which often uh, consists of our doctrine. But faith in this sense is not what Luke is talking about. Luke is talking about a faith that is a deep, Trust into something. It's it's not so much talking primarily about our feelings or an internal sense about something. I'll give you an illustration. One pastor puts it like this. Three men being uh, chased by a bear through the woods. Okay? As they're being chased by a bear through a woods, all of them are hightailing and they come to the cliff's edge. Below them, a frozen river. And their only way of escape is to jump down, say, five to eight feet and run across the river for safety. The first guy says, We got to jump. That river will hold us. We got to go. The second guy says, "Uh, You know, I don't, sure, it might, it might not. I don't really know, but uh, I'm sort of with you. The third guy says, I don't know if that river will hold us, actually. I, I don't have the ability to get down there and test it beforehand. The bear's closing in. I got to do something. All three of them they jump. All three of them do. They run across the ice safely, and the bear doesn't kill them. Okay. Now I'll ask you which one of those men was saved. The third. All three, All three of them. It's exactly right. Well, she's right. She said the third. She just didn't say the other two. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now listen, listen here. Listen, this is is very important. What that illustrates is a very important principle uh, in understanding what the Bible talks about when it talks about faith. It is always, it is always about the object of our faith and its solidarity and its ability to hold. And it's less about my sense about that thing. In other words, Christianity is never about putting faith in faith. It is always about putting faith in Jesus. It is always about putting faith in Jesus. I'll say it this way. That when Luke talks about faith, he is talking about a lived out trust in an object. All three men were saved. Now, I just want to run a couple points of application by you. It's this sort of stuff. It's this sort of faith that even adults have a hard time coming to terms with. The adults in the room, if they're honest, they'll nod their heads like this and go, I have to wake up every day and tell myself that it's Jesus that saves me and not me. Every adult in this room, if they're honest, are going to have to say that. Because you know why? Every day we wake up and we want to save ourselves. That's the sort of heart that we have. But I want to ask you this. When we come, we often come to Jesus longing for something else besides Jesus, okay? This this man, when he was being healed, he came looking for sight. A lot of us do that. You see, when I became a Christian, do you know why I became a Christian? I became a Christian because I just got dumped. And I asked God, I said, Lord, the next girl I want to marry is next to I want to date, I want to date a godly woman. And it was like God, I mean, he didn't say this to me, but I was like, oh man, well, if I'm going to date a godly woman, I better get my act together and become a godly man. And part of that's true. You know, my heart needs to be shaped. And the Lord did give me a wonderful wife. But the whole reason I gave myself unto the Lord was so that he would help me out. Now, a lot of us do that. There's a story that... uh, Tim Keller tells, it's sort of like, uh, he was counseling, he's a pastor in New York City, he was counseling a girl about the girls in here's age, right? And uh, he says this, he says, he was talking with the girl and the girl said, you know what? Listen, Tim, I believe that Jesus died for me, that Jesus rose again from the dead for my sins. I believe that when I die, I will spend life eternally with him. But what good is all that going to do if it won't get the boys to look at me? Now, that some of you, I'm getting into your mail. In, in other words, Jesus lost out, as Tim would say, to some, <laughs> I have him too, fellas, some pimply-faced kid. Jesus lost out to that. Now, the mark of Christian maturity here is that that faith is going to be worked deep and deep in, deeper and deeper in, such that We become become men and women who go to Jesus not so that Jesus will give us stuff, but the things that he makes are wonderful. And I will affirm it till the day I die that the creation is good. But that's not what God calls us to come to him for primarily. Do you know what it is? He calls us to come to himself for what? For himself. And the more we grow in that, that's a mark of Christian maturity. We'll learn together on that. If I see you next year, you can ask me how I'm doing. I'm continuing to grow in this. I don't have it figured out. Okay? We'll learn together. Lastly, we see in this text an image that, that the stain that the stain goes farther out than we think. Look with me the last two verses of our text. Verses 42 and 43. Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. What I mainly want to say is here, the story, the stain doesn't stop with you. It doesn't stop with you. If the stain has taken hold, it will always work its way out, as Chavez said earlier this week, out of you to other people. Look with me. Notice in this text how the blind man wasn't the only one whose eyes were opened to the glory and the power of Jesus. Whose else were? The self-same crowd that was telling him to shut up. Look with me in verse 43. It says right there, all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Their eyes were opened too. Why? Because of what God had done in this one man's life. They saw his eyes open and they glorified God. Now, we need to look for just a moment at what it means to glorify something and then we're going to close, okay? To glorify something means to ascribe beauty to something and to live as if it were so. How's that work? Okay, my wife, and she's coming down the aisle on our wedding day, I'm sitting there, knees are knocking We're singing, that's what we decided to do. We decided to sing um, How Great Thou Art as Laura, my wife, came down. And when the, the fourth verse was sung, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation, what joy shall fill my heart. Those doors parted, and it might as well have been the Red Sea for me. Because down came Laura in all of her splendor, in all of her beauty, and I <laughs> wept like a baby. And everybody's eyes were on her. And ev- nobody was paying attention to me. <laughs> nobody was. <laughs> they were all looking at Laura. And they weren't singing anymore. Because you know what they were doing? they were going, at oh, her. Is oh, is oh, is oh, <laughs> 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 but isn't that what we talked about in worship yesterday? We said, What? Right. The enjoyment or the delight of a thing is complete when we praise it. That's what it means to glorify something. It means to ascribe beauty to something. And this brings us right back to where we started. I said this. I said that your purpose, that the purpose of being stained was for beauty. And I'm venturing to guess that about 90% of you thought I was talking about your beauty. Yes, you were made for beauty. But you were made and you were stained for the beauty of Jesus. The whole reason you were stained, the whole reason that Jesus has worked his beauty into you is for what? So that you will reflect that beauty to a world that the world will see, that the world will reflect the beauty of God. The prophets Isaiah the prophets have back and talk about this. That the day is coming where the, the face of the earth is going to be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And guess how that's going to come about? Through stained-soaked folks like you and me. Can you believe it? It's true. It is true. Um, I want to close with this. In my bedroom, back in my parents' in my houses, in my house at my parents' in Franklin, Tennessee, there is a table that's about 200 years old. It's about that size, and it was like my great, 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 umpteenth great grandfather, like back in the Stone Age, right? And my mom has had this for a while, and, a few, and about 10 years ago, she took a sander to it and stripped it and took all of the nicks and dings and scratches out of it, all the stain and varnish off of it, and what she did was is that she applied a new coat of stain. And it began to bring out the colors and the tones and the way that the wood was made when it was cut. It just began to shine. It was a piece of work. It was beautiful because of what was in that wood already. It was a piece of work. I want to tell you all something. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10. Do you all know that what you and me are called? We're called God's workmanship. And do you know what that word says in the Greek? You probably don't. It's actually poema. And that's where we get our word poem you know what you are? You are the Lord's work of art. You are his beautiful, beautiful masterpiece. And he is working his very same character into you so that you would work it out and reveal it and share it with the world. That is your purpose as an artifact, as a beautiful piece of art. How in the world will this ever begin to move you? You see, there wasn't just one man that cried out mercy that day by the roadside. Later on, there would be another man. There would be another man who was not alongside the road, but hanging on the cross. And he too would cry mercy. He too would say mercy like this, Father, have mercy on them. They don't know what they're doing. You see what Jesus did? Jesus cried out mercy and made beautiful the very ones that were staining him, so that those who were stained would be made absolutely beautiful, absolutely stunning. Dear friends, men and women, this is your most glorious calling. I urge you to live out of it. You will rock your churches, you will shape the very world that you live in if you do. Will you join me in doing that? Thank you for listening, let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been so incredibly kind to us that you would call us your poems, your workmanship, your craftsmanship. And while Lord, that is not always easy to be worked over like a canvas is worked over and scraped on, We long for the day when you would make us complete in Christ. We pray that you would do that soon, O Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Until then, Lord, we eat now of a wonderful feast that says, suck with me. This is a party, this thing you are a part of. Would you quicken our hearts and make us ready for this wonderful meal? Help us to celebrate what you are doing. Continue to work in your stain, O Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you allow us and free us and enable us to work out your beauty into the world. O stain us in that way, that that we might stain the world. We ask this for His sake, that the world would know Jesus and glorify Him. Amen. Go ahead and invite Rick Schaefer up. He's going to come and lead us at the table. So, Rick, will you come up, brother?
1: There's probably nothing more fitting for us to do at the end of a week like we just had than to celebrate the Lord's Supper which is what we're about to do, because I think the Lord's Supper uh, brings into focus everything that you've heard this week. And not only does it do that, it allows us to celebrate all that God has done all these many days and through all these lectures and messages and interactions that we've had. It all comes together as we celebrate this meal right now. If you leave here today and you go down the hill, well, you're not going to leave today, if you leave here tomorrow, and you go down the hill, and as you go down the hill, you start thinking about what you have to do. You need to remember the body and blood of Christ, because the first thing that you should be thinking is not what you have to do, but that He's already done it. He's already lived the life for you. He's done for you what you couldn't do. He's shed His blood for you. And this meal reminds you that He's done it all for you. If you go down the hill and you think, God has blessed me, I need to earn what he's done. Let this meal remind you that there's nothing to earn. It's a gift. And he's given it to you freely in Jesus as an expression of his love. And so it brings all that into focus, but it allows us, as we take this meal, to celebrate all that he's done for us. We get to celebrate all that He's done for you this week in renewing your relationship with Him. But the other thing that we get to celebrate that we haven't talked too much about, but you just got done sharing about over dinner, is that when He does this, when He renews us, the other thing that He's doing is He's bonding us together as the body of Christ. When we eat the body of Christ, we do that as the body of Christ. And we get to celebrate right now what you already know. That something didn't happen just inside of you, something happened among us, and we get to celebrate that in God's gift. This table is something that I'm not going to invite you to. John's not going to invite you to it, although I will invite you up there. Jesus invites you to this table. It's His table. It's His meal, and he invites you to come if you believe. If you have trusted Jesus, this meal is for you. If you've just rolled over on Him in the goodness of His grace, this meal is for you. If you haven't, this is a great time to just pause and stay where you are and think about this meal. Think about all that you've heard about Jesus and contemplate Him. The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread, and after breaking it, He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In a similar way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins, shed so that your guilt might be removed, shed so that you might know freedom in Jesus. Shed so that you might know that abundant life. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you take this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he returns. Let's ask God to bless this man. Father God, we have so much to be thankful for. You have given us everything in Christ Jesus. You've done it all. There was nothing meal, nothing missing. And Father, we thank you for it. We thank you for the the life of Christ that was lived for us. The blood of Christ shed for us. And Father, as we eat this meal, we pray that you would nourish our souls. Nourish us so that we can go down this hill, this mountain, and go back to where we came from. And that we might follow you with a fresh faith.
0: We pray this in Jesus' name.